0: Pray with me. Lord, may the words of my mouth and the meditations of our hearts always be acceptable in thy sight. For thou art our rock and our redeemer. Amen. Please be seated. I want to start today by reading part of a fairy tale to you. You might be familiar with this one, or you might think you're familiar with this one. It's called The Tale of Cinderella. The wife of a rich man fell sick, and as she felt that her end was drawing near, she called her only daughter to her bedside and said, Dear child, be good and pious, and then the good God will always protect you. And I will look down on you from heaven and be near you. Then she closed her eyes and departed. Every day the maiden went out to her mother's grave and wept, and she remained pious and good. When winter came and the snow spread a white sheet over the grave, and when the spring sun had drawn it off again, the man had taken another wife. And the rest of the story, of course, goes that the man takes another wife who has two daughters who are envious of Cinderella, and you have the, um, the great ball offered by the prince, where Cinderella goes to the ball, and the shoe, and all of that. But I want to skip to the end, because it's a little different than the way Disney has it. He absolutely insisted on it and Cinderella had to be called. She first washed her hands and face clean and went and and bowed down before the king's son who gave her the golden shoe. Then she seated herself on a stool, drew her foot out of the heavy wooden shoe and put it into the slipper which fit like a glove. And when she rose up and the king's son looked at her face, he recognized the beautiful maiden who had danced with him and cried, "'That is the true bride.' "'The stepmother and the two sisters were terrified "'and became pale with rage. "'He, however, took Cinderella on his horse "'and rode away with her. "'As they passed by the hazel tree, "'the two dubs cried, "'Turn and peep, turn and peep, "'no blood is on the shoe. "'The shoe is not too small for her. "'The true bride rides with you.' "'And when they had cried that, "'the two came flying down and placed themselves "'on Cinderella's shoulders.' one on the right, the other on the left, and remained sitting there. When the wedding with the king's son was celebrated, the two false sisters came and wanted to get into favor with Cinderella and share her good fortune. When the betrothed couple went to the church, the elder was at the right side and the younger at the left, and the pigeons pecked out one eye of each of them. Afterwards, they came back, and the elder was on the left and the younger on the right, and the pigeons pecked out the eye of each. And thus, their wickedness and falsehood were punished with blindness as long as they lived. And they lived happily ever after. A little different than the Disney version, I'd say, right? You know, it struck me this week as I was reading through some articles and looking at some sites that I usually look at, that somehow we've come to a point in our culture particularly with our theologians, that the truth and um, forthrightness of fairy tales is more clear on morality than some of our theologians. That what's right and what's wrong, what's good and what's evil, what's true and what's false, is clearer in fairy tales than it is with some of our pastors and bishops. What's with that? As we ponder that, let's open our Bibles first to Isaiah chapter 28 and look at the main points of today's sermon. We start in the book of Isaiah with our Old Testament reading, and there's four points that I want us to think about today. Number one, the truth of good and evil is fixed by God, which should sound familiar to you because it was a point last week. Secondly, There's only one road out of destruction, and the door is narrow. Thirdly, seeking and striving are necessary. Fourthly, the invitation of God is to everyone. In the Old Testament passage in Isaiah, the prophet is continuing to warn God's people and he's warning them that the truth of good and evil are in fact objective and fixed by God. As we open God's speaking through the prophet Isaiah, and he's chastising the scoffers and the liars among his people. Look at Isaiah chapter 28, verse 14, where we start today's lesson. Therefore, hear the word of the Lord, you scoffers, who rule his people in Jerusalem. Because you have said, We have made a covenant with death. And with Sheol, Sheol, we have an agreement. What's the prophet saying here? Listen up. Scholar Ostwald writes in his commentary that there's an important connection here with the word scoffer, that the prophet uses that word very intentionally. What is a scoffer? What's a scoffer? A naysayer, yeah, a naysayer, that's a good synonym. Does a scoffer believe what's being said? No. But it's a step beyond that, right? The scoffer doesn't just believe what's be just does not disbelieve what's being said, he is naysaying, he is mocking it, he's scoffing at it, looking down at it, right? What's the opposite of a scoffer? Because the prophet Isaiah is actually setting us up here for another scripture that might not be popping to mind here for you. But what's the opposite of a scoffer? I'll give you a hint. It's in the book of Psalms. Someone who scoffs the truth. Someone who is affirming. Okay, that's close. Yeah? That's the beginning. Beyond that, though, what's the next step? Remember, like, just the scoffer disbelieves. So affirming would be to believe. But what's beyond believing? How, what, what word do we have for someone who persists in good belief? He or she is not doubtful. He or she is faithful. Exactly. And so the author here... And Isaiah is actually setting up a contrast between the scoffer and the faithful. Psalm 1 reads this way, Blessed is the man who walks not in the counsel of the wicked, nor stands in the way of sinners, nor sits in the seats of scoffers. Scoffers. So blessed is the man, blessed is the faithful person who does not sit in the seat with the scoffers. You see, in this time in Hebrew history, the Jewish people, particularly and perhaps the worst, the leaders and the priests in Isaiah's time, were not just not abiding by God's commandments, they were scoffing at God's commandments. "Ah, That doesn't matter anymore. That's passé. We don't need such truths as that. Look at verse 15. Because you have said, we have made a covenant with death and with Sheol, we have an agreement. When the overwhelming whip passes through, it will not come to us, for we've made our lies our refuge, and in falsehood have we taken shelter. You see? They've made covenants with death and Sheol, the place of the dead. And what's practically happened historically at this point is God's people, rather than turning to God, have made political alliances to secure their future. They've made political alliances with Egypt, thinking, ah, we've got the Egyptians on our side, the Assyrians surely will never be able to invade us now, but we don't need so much of that religion stuff. They've turned to other gods for help even, compromising The whole minor prophets is a, you know, read Hosea, for example. Read Amos. Read those, read uh, Zechariah. The minor prophets talk about God's people being faithless, not faithful to God. But what's at the root of both these political intrigue and this faithfulness, faithlessness, excuse me, God? It's a pride. It's a pride. Because what is it? It's ultimately the scoffers thinking, we know better. We know better than God. Somehow we've created the system that God hasn't figured out, and we'll make ourselves safe. And what's even worse, in their pride, they still give lip service to God. If you turn the page, at least in my Bible, To chapter 29, we have a further indictment of them. In chapter 29, verse 13. And the Lord said, Because this people draw near with their mouth, they honor me with their lips, while their hearts are far from me. And their fear of me is a commandment taught by men. Therefore, I will again do wonderful things. And perhaps it's better translated wondrous things. Because, in fact, God will correct this error. The exile will happen. Jerusalem will be destroyed. But God, and God will act. Now, look with me at verses 16 and 17 back in our reading, verse, uh, chapter 28. Therefore, thus says the Lord God, Behold, I am the one who has laid a foundation in Zion, a stone, a tested stone, a precious cornerstone, a sure foundation. Whoever believes will not be in haste. And I will make justice the line and righteousness the plumb line. And hail will sweep away the refuge of lies and waters overwhelm the shelter. You see, God is promising to act here. And his action will be a punishment and a judgment. But his action also sets a foundation for hope. The foundation and the cornerstone mentioned here. Notice what's described. I will make justice the line. What's that saying? Does anybody understand what's, what's being said here? What's the line? It, it's an ancient way of saying the level. Right? Do you ever take a level and hang a picture on your wall? Or you ever set a beam into place with a level? Well, what is it? The level is the measure of what's right and wrong. And what else, what else does he say? Righteousness, the plumb line. What's a plumb line? It's an ancient piece of equipment, but we still use it in carpentry and building today, right? You've seen it probably in Lowe's maybe or Home Depot. It's like a weight with a point on the end of it. It's about, yeah, yay big. And you put it on the end of a rope and you post the rope at the top and the plumb line swings back and forth like a pendulum until it comes straight with the center of gravity, right? And you know from the plumb line what is square. So what's the prophet Isaiah saying? This cornerstone will be the level and the square. You could put it in a modern translation, the level and the carpenter's square, if you'd like. To judge what is true, to judge what is right, to judge what is square, what is correct, and what is not, what is angled, what is cockeyed, what is wrong. That's what the prophet's saying here. That cornerstone, of course, we know, is a Prophetic image given to the Hebrew people of Jesus Christ. For Jesus himself is called the cornerstone. That's one of his names. And while our modern society, with self-appointed, sophisticated intellectuals and cultural experts and politicians continually tell us that there is no fixed right or wrong, or continually tell us that, oh, well, that's right for you, but not right for me, or that's your morality. This is my morality. Or, well, that's good for that culture, but not for this culture. That culture's set of rules is different than this culture's set of rules. When it comes down to the very basics There is only one set of rules, there is only right and wrong, and those things are universal. They transcend cultures, they transcend statuses, they transcend identities. Don't fall into any of that garbage. There is no relative right or wrong. There is right, there is wrong. And it's fixed in God. And it's by His standard that all rights and wrongs are measured. Some are closer, some are further. Why do we fall for this stuff? Because it's attractive. It makes us feel good about ourselves. If we can play fast and loose with our morality, if we can say, well, I'm a victim, therefore, you have to indulge me in this wrong, for example. That makes me feel good. It elevates me. It pits me. It puts me above somebody else. But look, there's nothing new to this. This is going on in the book of Isaiah. And in fact, the logical outgrowth of this kind of thinking is none other than Pontius Pilate, who, when Jesus stands before him, scourged, and about to go to the cross, says, what is truth? What is truth? And of course, Jesus, the great irony is that Jesus is the way, the truth, and the life standing there in the flesh before him. So the prophet Isaiah is not just setting, sending a prophecy here. He's laying a foundation for Jesus, not just prophetically, but logically, do you see? Jesus is the foundation on which the gate Or the door is laid. Now this would seem so far to be bad news, wouldn't it? If you have the perfect foundation, and if if the measure of that is justice and righteousness, who can measure up? But notice it doesn't end there. The cornerstone is Christ, and on the cornerstone becomes the entryway. Ephesians chapter 2, verse 19. Jesus is described as the cornerstone. And if you think that, you know, I'm just jumping to conclusions here, St. Paul writes to the Ephesian church, chapter 2, verse 19 So then, you are no longer strangers and aliens, but you are fellow citizens of the saints and members of the household of God, built on the foundation of the apostles and prophets, Jesus Christ himself being the cornerstone. The cornerstone. The scoffers will never find the truth. In philosophy back in undergrad, we had a name for these people, which I've probably said before. We said that scoffers, fancy academic name, they are epistemically vicious people. When that just simply means they have no desire to know the truth. They're sophists. They go through arguments. They go in circles. They don't want to know what's true. They just want to talk. They'll never know the truth because they're too busy scoffing at it. But of course, Jesus is the way, the truth, and the life. And as our Hebrew reading today says in 12, 25, see that you do not refuse him who is speaking. For if they did not escape when they refused him who warned them on earth, much less will we escape if we reject him who warns us from heaven Even those who look for the entrance to eternal life will find the gate small Don't believe me look at Jesus' words himself Luke chapter 13 verse 22 our gospel reading chapter 13 Verse 22, he, that is Jesus, went on his way through the towns and villages, teaching and journeying towards Jerusalem, and someone said to him, Lord, will those who are saved be few? And he said to them, strive to enter through the narrow door, for many, I tell you, will seek to enter and will not be able. Strive to enter, to narrow, to enter through the narrow door. Let's stop there for a moment. We don't know who the questioner is in this Gospel. We don't know who's asking Jesus this. There's some commentator guesses. Lenski makes the point that it's probably someone in the crowd, not someone that's part of Jesus' entourage because he addresses Jesus with a different formation of the Greek. He says, When he says Lord here, he's almost saying Sir instead of saying Rabbi, for example. So that's one of the thoughts, that it's someone in the crowd Honestly, it it doesn't matter. Look at what he asks, because his question's pertinent. Will the saved be few? Will those who are saved be few? What's he concerned with? He's concerned with size, he's concerned with quantity, right? Will the saved be few? What's Jesus' answer? You see, this man's concerned with the theoretical. What's Jesus' answer? Strive to enter through the narrow door. Well, he doesn't engage the man or the woman, we're not sure. He doesn't engage the person on the number. What does he say? He says, that's not for you to worry about. If you dig into the Greek here, he's saying, you strive... Jesus, will the number be few? You strive. Don't worry about the number. That's a secondary point. But you must strive to enter through the narrow door. And then he goes on. For many, I tell you, will seek to enter and will not be able. So we at least know quantitatively that the number that seek is not going to be the number that enter. By Jesus' words here. The word for strive here is agoniste, agoniste, which sounds like an English word, doesn't it? What's it sound like? Agonize, agony, strive, agonize over. The Greek word here used for strive is actually the word used to contend in a gymnastics competition. It's also the word used to contend with soldiers, to battle, to strive, to put your all into it. Have any of you ever been in part of a competitive sport, you know, cross-country or wrestling or football? Or, it might have been years ago. For me, it was years ago. I was part of the, the junior high cross-country team, and I can tell you that there's nothing like coming around the final bend, you come around the corner, you see the big chute, is what they call it, right, set up, with the stakes and the ropes, and you're, you're running towards the end of the chute, and some people are, you know, vomiting as they get to the end, right? I never did that. I was smart enough not to eat much before I ran. But that is the idea behind Jesus' word here, to strive, to strive to find the narrow gate, Though it costs you everything, put your all into it. It's a direct response, a personal response, a call of Christ. And it's a call of Christ in two ways. It's a call to first, seek the narrow way. Who is the narrow way? Jesus says, John 14, 6, I am the way, the truth, and the life. No one comes before the Father but through me. There's a lot of theologians and pastors and bishops who are confused about that. They say, "Well, Jesus is a way." Or, "Well, that's your way." Or, you know, that's your relative truth. Jesus says nothing like that. He says, "I am the way, the truth and the life, universal trans trans uh, what word am I looking for? Transcending. Thank you transcending all value sets, all cultures, all truth claims. He is the way, the truth, and the life. No one comes to the Father but by Him. And that's hard, if we're honest. But you know what else is hard? Persisting in that. Striving in that. Once we've made that choice. Right? Right? Look at the rest of verse 24 and 25 in the gospel. Strive to enter, he says, verse 25. When once the master of the house is risen and shut the door, and you begin to stand outside and knock at the door, saying, Lord, open to us, he will answer you, I do not know where you come from. Then you will begin to say, we ate and drank in your presence, and you taught in our streets, but he will say, I tell you, I do not know where you come from. Depart from me, all you workers of evil. There's no gray area there. Depart from me, all you workers of evil. Jesus' main point here is that he is the way and he's narrow. He's the only way. But there's two sub-points. Number one, the time for salvation is short. None of us knows what will be the markers of our life. We don't come into this world under our own power. We don't leave this world under our own power. The time of salvation is short. And when the door is closed, the door is closed. So what are we waiting for? And why would we not share that with people who don't know that the time of salvation is short? Number two, a lifetime of salvation following Jesus isn't easy. We grow too easily complacent in our striving. And while what Martin Luther says, if he were not in the opening hymn, if we're not the right man on our side, our striving would be losing. Of course, it all depends on Jesus Christ. At the same time, the striving's important, right? What's Jesus talking about at the end of the passage here? Look at verse 28. In that place there will be weeping and gnashing of teeth when you see Abraham and Isaac and Jacob and all the prophets of the kingdom of God, but you yourselves cast out. He's talking about hell. Just another reference to hell. Do you know Jesus talks about hell a lot more than he talks about heaven? I can't give you the stats on that, but he does. And what Jesus is originally talking about here is those who are walking with him and yet still don't believe. I mean, think about that. There's people that walked around with Jesus Christ, the Son of God, and still didn't believe. People like Pontius Pilate who stood in front of him and said, what is truth? And yet we have the ability, the blessing, to be able to believe even without that. But let's get back to the striving. St. Augustine says that even Christ's enemies eat and drink with him to this day. What's he mean by that? That within the church, there are those who are faithful and those who are faithless. And we won't know what that will be until the end of time. But importantly, God knows what that, who that will be. And there are marks of the faithful and the faithless, though we can't point them out. We can point out the marks. St. Cyril of Alexandria says that a mark of being faithless is under tendency to carnal lust, shameful and pleasure-loving lives, a stubborn mind that will not bend to the yoke of God's law. He says this life is cursed, thrusting from it the divine law, and completely unmindful of the sacred commandments. Wealth, vices, scorn, pride spring from such a life. And the life is cursed because ultimately it casts one out of God's presence. The cornerstone is the measure and the narrow way. So we can't take that striving too seriously. It's too deadly to play with the idea. St. Cyril continues, he says... Many have believed in Christ and celebrated the holy festivals in his honor. Frequenting the churches, they also hear the doctrines of the gospel, but they remember absolutely nothing of the truths of Scripture. With difficulty, they bring with them the practice of virtue, while their heart is quite bare of spiritual fruitfulness. These also will weep bitterly and grind their teeth when the Lord will also deny them. That's the hard news. But look at the good news. Don't miss out on verse 29. And people will come from the east and the west, and from the north and the south, and recline at table in the kingdom of God. And behold, some are last who will be first, and some are first who will be last. What's the good news here? That because of the objectiveness, because the fact that this pervades all cultures, that this truth is true for everyone at all times and all places, because of that, the door, while narrow, is flung wide open. You don't have to come from the West to be a Christian. You don't have to come from a Christian family to be a Christian you can come from any background. You can come from any race. You can come from any ethnicity. You can come from any behavior and be a Christian. The door is narrow, but it's flung open wide for all who to come through Christ and repent and be part of the kingdom of God. You see, there's the gospel and the good news. So friends, let us strive together and press on. Let us not grow weary. Let us not be confused by the false messages of what swirls around us. Let us be grounded on Scripture. And I will close with another part of a fairy tale. This one's called Our Lady's Child. It's just a quote. If I could but confess before my death that I opened the door, then her voice came back to her. She cried out loudly, yes, I did it. And straight away, the rain fell from the sky. For, and the angel spoke to her kindly and said, He who repents his sins and acknowledges it is forgiven. There's more gospel in Grimm's fairy tales than in the world that swirls around us. Strive to endure, knowing that Christ, the right man, is on your side. Amen.